Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Oh, good evening. And welcome to episode 000127 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James from Radio City Docklands, which is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, and I remind us all that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We know um, also that in recent weeks there's been a major push by healthcare providers to boost the number of Aboriginal people vaccinated in this state. We have vaccine vans going out into communities, to the places where people live so they can get vaccinated. We have mobile clinics popping up about the place. I saw one run by VARS um, pop up at the Commission Flats in uh, Fitzroy, I think it was last week. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that the vaccine vaccine vans are actually down at Warnable uh, at the moment, um, getting Bob vaccinated down there. Um, in addition to these pop-ups and these vans, there are information hotlines people can call. Doctors and nurses are making themselves available to speak to the vaccine hesitant. Supply is no longer an issue. In fact, we're um, now reaching a point in this pandemic where there are little or no excuses not to get the jab if you want it. Uh, we all know how critically important uh, it is for mob to get vaccinated. We've covered it a number of times in this show. It's important not just for ourselves, but for the ones that we love, particularly our, our elders. So we're moving into a space of personal responsibility, a space where if you don't get vaccinated, there are consequences. I know families that are actually being divided over this, families that are otherwise close and content, um, except for this one issue. The fact is that some families can't allow unvaccinated members of their own family near them, especially when it comes to welders. It's a terribly sad situation, but it is beginning to happen around the place. Um, we all know the consequences when it comes to attending um, uh, events like pubs and restaurants and the like. You're not allowed in if you're not double vaxxed. But surely the worst consequence of not getting the jab is to be ostracised from your own loved ones. Um, people's hearts are breaking over this. So if you're a mob out there and you're not vaccinated or you need to have more information about getting vaccinated, then uh, contact your doctor, contact your local ACHO, or you can call the VATCHO COVID information line, which is open nine to five, seven days a week. And that number is 1800 312 911. It is so important that we do this to, to get ourselves over the line, get our vaccination rates up because they have been lagging behind the mainstream population uh, pretty much the whole pandemic. And every effort is now being made to make sure that, that uh, the vaccine reaches people where they are in their own communities and their own homes. So if you're vaccine hesitant and you need more information, please contact a health professional and talk through um, the, the the pros and, and the very few cons of actually uh, getting vaccinated because um, we don't want to we don't want you to be left behind. Um, so on to tonight's show. Um, shortly I'll be joined by a professor of history at Monash University, Bain Atwood. He has penned a book on the life of legendary Yorta Yorta man and activist William Cooper. I'm very, very much looking forward to uh, that conversation. Full disclosure, uh, William was my great-great-uncle. His um, sister, Ada, was my great-great-grandmother. 
Um, it's a story that means uh, a lot to me, a lot to my people, and uh, hopefully it will mean a lot to uh, the broader community as well. So it's a story close to my heart, so I'm looking forward to that conversation with Professor Bain shortly. And in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by um, Torres Strait Islander man, Jesse Mosby. He's coming back on the show to talk about, well, his continued fight on climate change. Uh, like the majority of Australians, uh, he and his people are asking the government to pass laws to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in line with its commitments to a 1.5 degree target under the Paris Agreement. Um, it's affecting the Torres Strait Islander um, people disproportionately and it's uh, affecting um, our friends and neighbours in the in the Asia-Pacific disproportionately as well. So uh, we'll speak to Yessi about all that and the efforts that uh, he and his people are going to to make sure that this stays on the agenda for our government. As always, the best way to get in contact with me is via my Twitter handle at MrDTJames. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Uh, you're listening to The Mission. My name is Daniel. Um, uh, thank you for listening. If you're listening through the National Indigenous Radio Service and through Koori Radio in Sydney as well, welcome one and welcome all. Uh, the story and life of Yorta Yorta Man and founder of the Australian Aborigines League, William Cooper, has been gradually entering the conscience of mainstream Australia over recent years. There are now law buildings named after him. The former federal seat of Batman, Batman was changed to Cooper in his honour. A great decision. Uh, Monash University has a William Cooper Institute. And while Cooper's name is becoming more familiar to people, much of his story remains unknown outside that of the Aboriginal community, where Cooper and his contemporaries are very much lauded as the brave innovators that they were. Thankfully, our next guest, we have people like him, Professor of History at Monash University, Bain Atwood. He's here to help us to learn more about the life and times of William Cooper, and has just authored a new book entitled William Cooper, An Aboriginal Life Story. As well as being a professor of history, Bain has also had fellowships at the University of Cambridge and Harvard University. In 2010, his book, Possession, Batman's Treaty and Matter of History, won the Ernest Scott Prize for the most distinguished contribution to history of Australia or New Zealand, New Zealand or colonial history. He also has authored um, other books. Previous works include Rights for Aborigines, Telling the Truth About Aboriginal History and, the, and Empire, The Making of Native Title, Sovereignty, uh, Property and Indigenous People. He's also the co-editor of Telling Stories, Indigenous History and Memory in Australia and New Zealand, and Protection and Empire, A Global History. So he's well-versed in this time and place, and I'm very pleased to say that he's on the line now to speak with us. Um, Bain, welcome to the mission. Thanks very much, Daniel. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about um, my book on William Cooper. Um, we've um, I've, I've, I've mentioned the, the, the other publications that you're involved with or have um, uh, co-authored or, or authored. Uh, you've written a great deal about this particular period of uh, history and particularly Aboriginal history at the point of first contact and, and beyond. What, what attracts you to this particular aspect of our history? Well, I first wrote about um, William Cooper and the subject of campaigns for Aboriginal rights more than 20 years ago in one of the books you mentioned, Rights for Aborigines. But I was drawn back to um, Uncle William in recent times. I find him a really interesting figure, indeed a fascinating figure. And he's important, I think, not only for what he did in the past, but really because of what he did in the past, or at least some of it has a really 
contemporary resonance, particularly um, the principal demand in his petition to the British King, which he drew up in 1933 and was presented to the Australian government in 1937, the principal demand being for an Aboriginal representative in the federal parliament. I think one of the perspectives I bring to the book is the conviction that what's really important um, for at least white fellows like myself is to grapple with uh, an approach that um, academic historians, at least like myself, call the approach of Aboriginal history. It's an approach which lays emphasis on Aboriginal people as as, as subjects, uh, looks at what historians call Aboriginal people's agency, in, in other words, their capacity, however limited, to, to shape the world around them. And perhaps most importantly, to provide an Aboriginal perspective. And in saying that, I guess part of what I'm, I'm implying is, is a criticism of at least some of the work that other white fellow historians, including myself at various times, have done. It's, that's an approach which very much emphasises, and understandably so, the dispossession, the decimation, the displacement, the discrimination against Aboriginal people. But I think the problem with that approach is that you can end up with a story which is very much, if you like, a white centred perspective. In other words, what white fellows did to Aboriginal people. And for a long time, I've been interested in, well, how did Aboriginal people adapt, if you like, to colonisation? How did they respond? How did they resist, if you like? How did they fight back, using indeed many of the tools that the British colonisers used themselves and sometimes introduced them to? Yes, um, he he was involved with um, petitions going right back into uh, the 1880s, wasn't he? I think uh, one of the first ones was uh, known as the uh, Maloga uh, uh, petition, in which he was basically um, him him and his people were basically asking for a small parcel of their own land back from um, uh, from the, the colonisers, and so it was it was a it was a tactic that um, uh, he and his people used very early on. They used those petitions and 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 the use of words to actually um, uh, try and play the the, the colonisers at, at their own game. That's that's right. And he was boy was he he adept at doing this. You see, look, you're quite right. And part of what I do in the book is to is to try and well and truly situate um, Uncle William in the midst of his own people, the Yorta Yorta people. In other words, this was by no means a struggle that he fought on his own, the organisation you mentioned before, the Australian Aborigines League, which he founds in 1933 or 1944, um, are very much part of all the work that he does. And as far as the petitions go, as you say, he, he's drawing, if you like, on this really quite long tradition amongst his people of using the political tool of, pet, of petition or petitioning to seek a number of things, including, as you say, uh, the right to, as he put it, a small, small amount of, um, of his people, his ancestors' land. And, of course, in doing that, he's arguing very strongly that Aboriginal people are the first peoples and that they have a right to at least some land on the basis of, of that very fact. So, as you say, he's, um, at the very least, he knows of um, that Maloga petition of, of 1881, but then there's, there's other points... In his life, um, later in the 1880s, uh, in the 1890s, 
um, where he, as far as we can tell, is a signatory to petitions that that, that come out of Maloga or um, its successor, uh, Kamaragunja. And so he, he's well and truly familiar with this this political technique. So by the time he decides, um, after coming to Melbourne in 1933, in order to uh, really launch his political campaign, and, and you know, as you know, by this time, by 1933, he's 73, 74. And so this is really remarkable that in, here he is in his 70s and he comes to Melbourne because he believes that the resources that he needs in order to make his campaign on behalf of his people will be found in Melbourne. And so he comes here and very soon after he comes here, um, he has drawn up the petition to the king um, so he's very much you know, part of this, as I said, this long tradition amongst his people of petitioning government, whether it's the New South Wales government um, or going really to the, you know, to the height or the peak of, of the British Empire, in, in other words, uh, to the British monarch. Yeah, he, um, he 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 tried it on um, at all levels, um, you know, much, 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 much to his credit. Um, one thing that has always kind of struck me about um, when I when I think about his life is how much frustration would have been, um, uh, I guess, involved in in so many of the the acts and, and therefore the the setbacks that uh, would inevitably come. I mean, I, I, the idea of. Um, writing to uh, the governor of New South Wales asking for um, a parcel of your own land back and then um, having to continue to fight and struggle for that and um, ending up with uh, Cumbergunja uh, eventually. Um, th- those sorts of, you know, seemingly, um, how would I put it, um, straight up and down sort of requests, you know, in terms of, okay, well, you know, this is our land. Can we have a little bit of it back? We're not asking for much. We've got to work work it. Um, the, the the correspondence and, and and dealing with the colonisers throughout his entire life um, must have been terribly frustrating for him, and and he probably um, uh, felt that towards the end of his life more than anything. Yes, I mean maybe frustrating is an understatement. I mean, yeah. <laughs> surely he found it maddening. I mean, what you're saying, I think, is absolutely right, and it raises a for me, as, a, as an academic historian, in other words, somebody who tells stories about the past within a particular intellectual tradition, what you're asking raises, I think, a really important question, and that is, well, how do we know about the past, and how, in this case, do we know about what Uncle William did? And, I mean, in one respect, relatively speaking, we are enormously lucky because because he was politically active and sent as you say, you know, lots and lots of letters to government and government kept those and so in that fullness of time they became part of of an art archive, whether it's, the, for example, the State Archives of New South Wales or the National Archives of Australia. And you get, you get glimpses in that correspondence of his frustration. So, for example, there's one letter in 1937 where there's been a, a major conference. It's actually the first ever conference national conference of the white administrators of Aboriginal affairs. And William has enormously high hopes of this conference, of what will come from it. And nothing comes. And he's so, he's angry. And he, and he writes to um, a, government, a federal government minister, um, drawing very much on his knowledge of the Bible. And he says, we ask for bread. And it looks like we're scarce. We're, all we're going to get is a stone. 
So there's enormous frustration. So you get glimpses of that in this correspondence to government. But what we are missing are the letters that he almost certainly wrote to other Aboriginal people, including other Aboriginal campaigners. For mm. example, Bill Ferguson in New South Wales. Um, he, you know, he was associated with with, with Bill Ferguson, um, and I think, and and some of the other campaigners like like Jack Patton um, and so forth. And I think in all of the correspondence that historians like myself have been able to find, from memory, there's only one or two letters to to Aboriginal people. So, for example, in 1939, from memory just near the point where what we call the walk-off or the strike at Kamaragunja Reserve, where, you know, of course, that's where he, he spent so, many, so much of his life. Mm. He writes to, I think, one of his nephews. Well, that's, that's one of the few, very, very few letters. And so um, I'm very much aware in writing this book that, yes, I've been able to um, learn uh, a lot using you know, the traditional techniques of this historian or rather using the the historical sources that academic historians like myself tend to rely on, which is the written record created at the time. But so much is missing. I think what I was struck by in doing this book is the importance of, what will we call it? Well, certainly the pictorial, the visual, and the oral. And I feel very fortunate that the publisher of the book, Melbourne University Publishing, um, were prepared to include really almost as as many photographs as, as, as I was able to in the book, and one of the, um, well, a very enriching experience for me in writing this book was working with members of, of Uncle William's family, and not surprisingly, perhaps, they have re- kept photographs of him over this long period of time. These are clearly photographs that they, they treasure, that these are photographs that were, that Uncle William shared with his with his children and, and other members of his family. And I feel very privileged to be able to include them in the book. And, and my goodness, there are some wonderful photographs. I, I think my favourite is um, is a photo that was taken of him, I think somewhere in the mid-1930s. So this is after he has come to Melbourne, or more specifically, um, uh, started to live in Footscray. And it's a photo of him striding yeah. down Nicholson Street, <laughs> the, main, the main street. You know the photograph I'm talking oh, about? No, I, I, know, I know the photo because I was looking at it about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it wonderful? It's a great photo, and it shows what um, what uh, immense physical presence he must have had as well. He was a he was a tall, powerfully uh, built man um, with uh, striking striking features, and so I think um, again part of his frustration, um, I guess, over the years would have been his inability to actually get in the room with decision makers. Because if he was able to get in the room with some of these decision makers, his presence would have been well and truly felt. Yeah, look, I think you're absolutely right. And so, you know, as I said, the visual element, um, recovering that's very important. And as you say, the other element is, is the oral element. And that's one of the reasons why I start the book in, in, in the prologue with um, an interview that a, a very um, important journalist by the name of um, Clive Turnbull conducted with him. Turnbull was a journalist for the, New, for the Melbourne Herald, and he conducted this interview with Uncle William in 1937. And it's one of the rare instances in the historical record where, where Uncle William is not writing, he's speaking. And, and, yes. he, and you just get this sense of, you know, of course, he was, he was eloquent, he was articulate, and yet 
as I guess you're saying, he had so little opportunity. I mean, there's, there's just one instance, as far as I remember, where he gets the opportunity. Um, this is in the beginning of 1934. He has an opportunity to meet, along with several other members of the Australian Aborigines League, to meet um, one of the federal government ministers um, in Melbourne. Um, and he speaks at that meeting, as do some of the other um, uh, people um, from memory, those like Doug Nichols. Um, but for the most part, they didn't invite him into the room. And so, I mean, this, of course, links with his principal demand in the petition to the king, that, that above all else, what he was asking for in that petition was, well, what we would call now, I suppose, a voice in Parliament. Not the Uluru Statement's voice to Parliament, but a voice yep. in Parliament. And this is the thread, I think, that runs right through the period from 1933 until he passes away in 1941. And, and you know, the last letter, as far as we know, the last political letter, if you like, that he writes, this is to Prime Minister Robert Menzies, right at the end of this letter, he asks, what on earth is happening with my petition mm. to the King? And what is happening to my repeated request for an Aboriginal representative in Parliament? And what, he, what he's doing right through this time, I think, is making clear why he wants an Aboriginal representative, not only in federal Parliament, but at other, other points, um, but he and those around him, um, Thomas and Chadrack James, I presume you, uh, you're a relative of... I'm, I'm familiar with them, yes. Um, yeah, uh, Thomas yeah. Thomas was my great-great-grandfather and um, yes. Shadrach is my uh, great-grandfather, yeah. Yeah, so, so they're, as you probably know, they're enormously important to yeah. his work. And um, they, um, in some ways, anticipate what he says after he begins his political campaign in 1933, which includes this um, notion of of Aboriginal representation to Parliament, and they and Uncle William make clear that they're not just talking about representation in the federal parliament, but really all levels of government, at the level of state parliament, at the level of of, of Aboriginal reserves, which, of course, many Aboriginal people are living on reserves, and, and Uncle William is calling for a council on these reserves. So what he believes is fundamental is there has to be Aboriginal representative, representation. Why does he believe that? Because, as he puts it, Aboriginal people can think black. Those are his words, think black. And yes. and I was just think as an Aboriginal person, provide an Aboriginal perspective. And he says, you know, he says to the politicians, well, you, you simply can't think black. And why, did, why does he say that? He says, because you are the victors, you are the conquerors, and Aboriginal people like myself are the sufferers. So in other words, what he's saying from my point of view is, well, because I've had this particular experience, which is, you know, it's so profound in, in, in influencing this work. Because I've had this experience, he says, I, can, I see the world and I understand the world in different terms than you do. And if you are going to, you know, run Aboriginal affairs, he's, he's saying, so to speak, how on earth can you do this unless you invite us, as you're putting it, into the room, into Parliament, wherever, wherever it is? And um, so this, of course, is why, as I said earlier um, in our talk, why... The main thread in his political work has this enormous resonance today because this is still the issue, isn't it? One of the it is. It is, and 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 um, you know the the foresight um, of 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 these people um, still amazes me um, every, every day. You're listening to the mission. I'm chatting with Professor Bain Atwood about um, his new book, uh, William Cooper: An Aboriginal Life Story. Um, 
just before, Bain, we, we were talking about what you can know and what you can't know when it comes to, to history. And um, there is still so much unknown um, about uh, William Cooper and uh, and his story. One of those things that we, we can't know but we can um, have an, um, a healthy speculation about is the impacts of uh, first contact, particularly on people like his mother, uh, Kitty. Um, we, we don't know to what extent that that trauma uh, impacted on uh, William's life, but um, we can speculate that uh, by the time he started to ra- um, rise in prominence, um, that the trauma felt by him and his people and uh, people like his mother would have still been very much uh, resonant um, when they started off on this uh, journey of social justice. Yes, look, I, I don't think there's any doubt about, of course, there's no, surely there can't be any doubt about the degree of, of suffering. I mean, as, as I said before, when he, when, he, when he invoked this notion of thinking black, uh, one of the things he's, he, you know, he's speaking out of is not only his experience, of course, but the, 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 the experience of his people, the, the, the suffering that they have, have endured. Um, he's born in 1860, so in other words, he's born or around 1860, so by that stage, his people have been well and truly dispossessed of their land and to some degree, but I think only to some degree, displaced. And some of what I try and show in the book is not only is it what I've just mentioned, the dispossession and displacement of Aboriginal people, the Yorta Yorta people specifically, um, as a result of colonisation and more specifically the pastoral invasion of their land, which begins around about 1840. But what I also suggest, um, and I think you know, this goes back to my point about the importance of the approach of the approach I'm calling Aboriginal history is that I also seek to show that while they were dispossessed and displaced, that the Yorta Yorta, and of course this is, like, this is speaking relatively, are relatively yeah. fortunate in that they, I mean, archaeologists among others said that the Yorta Yorta people had amongst the most richest, the most rich resources of any Indigenous people in Australia, because they their their, their traditional lands included the Murray River, and so while they were dispossessed of much of their land, most of their land, they still, so long as they could continue to access the river and their lands to some degree, they had some means of survival. And so those like um, Uncle William, they work for the pastoralists. But they have—they're not completely powerless, in my view, by any by by any stretch of the imagination. They have some choice because they're able to continue to access their traditional food sources, most of all in the river. Um, of course, you know, there comes a point, actually, um, very soon after Uncle William's born, or perhaps even by that stage, where there are white fishermen. Um, and a particular company called, from memory, the Murray River Fishing Company, which is mm. set up in you know, Yorta Yorta Yort Waters, and they are exploiting the resources no end, but they are also employing Yorta Yorta people, in, um, including those like Uncle William's mother. And so this gives them, um, by being involved in the pastoral industry, in the fishing industry, they re- were able to remain in their own country, so which which was very important to them, and then 
by the 1870s, there are these missionaries, Daniel and Janet Matthews, who are responsible for establishing the Loga Mission in 1874. And Uncle William and, and his mother and um, some of Uncle William's siblings are drawn there almost immediately. And these missionaries, I think they have an enormous influence on yeah. Uncle William. But he also takes what they say and he, in a way, adopts and adapts their message to to his own ends. And so, yes, as you say, there's enormous suffering, but I think, I think it's important to recognise that alongside of that suffering, um, they... How can I put this? And again, there's a point about relativity. They don't lose as much as some other Indigenous people in Australia. They lose an enormous amount. I mean, there's no question about that. But at the same time, they um, are able to maintain some of their, if you like, pre-colonial or traditional resources and add to those resources by, if you like, borrowing ideas from Christianity. So what you're saying is that, um, you know, they're able... To a, to a degree, to retain some form of, of their own agency. That's right, that's right. And I think what's important is that I think so often many of us think that, the, as it were, the story of Aboriginal people in Australia after 1788 was a kind of linear story downhill all the way, so to speak, from 1788. And I don't think that's the case. In other words, I think there's moments I mean, where um, they are able to improve their position from what it was after they were first dispossessed. So, in other words, Maloga and then Kamaragunja. I think really important opportunities for what we might call Aboriginal recovery from yep. the devastation that's caused by colonisation in the first place. And what's really important is that they did start to recover um, at places like Maloga and Kamaraganja, and that then what happens? What happens is that, well, in the first place, as they, as they make that recovery, there are sympathetic white fellas. The missionaries, Daniel and Janet Matthews, um, a local MP um, by the name of John Chanter, he's, he, he's, he's a figure that um, Uncle William and, and others send their some of their petitions to. He, he they use him as a conduit. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, he's a conduit, a mediator, if you like, a kind of go-between. And they they know this. They 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 take advantage, uh, if you like, of that. Um, but then what happens is that um, it's an Aborigines Protection Board that's established, and in the first instance, when it's established in the early to mid 1880s, it by and large leaves. Organisations like the Aborigines Protection Association, which comes to oversee first Maloga and then Kamaragunja. The, the Aborigines Protection Board of New South Wales allows them to continue to do that. But then, before too long, the Aborigines Protection Board of New South Wales starts to take control. Yeah. And at that point, they don't know people. They don't know the Yorta Yorta people. Whereas, of course, those like Matthews and Chanter did, they knew them face to face. Yeah, and they had to. You know, they had to. You know, and and boy, boy. I mean, Uncle William and others confronted them and told them when they thought they were acting badly and wrongly. Yeah, but I mean, I, one thing, one thing I've always um, uh, thought 
Bain is that um, you know we had the devastation of disease and, and um, uh, alcohol and um, uh, you know the, the massacres and um, all those horrible horrible um, things that afflicted uh, Aboriginal people across the country. But from from my perspective, some of the deadliest agents of colonisation were the cl- clerks in uh, in major cities. Um, the people that didn't have line line of sight to to people on the land didn't know the people, just like you said. Um, they were some of the, the the deadliest agents of colonialism um, uh, throughout throughout the history of um, what we call now as uh, Australia. Look, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more, and I, I think there's a risk at the moment. Um, it seems to me that what's been happening, at least at least amongst academic historians, but I also think in a broader public realm is that we are increasingly focusing on acts of physical violence. So there's now a lot of talk about genocide in a physical sense. There's a lot of talk about massacres. And, look, there's no, there's no denying you know, that the way in which so many Aboriginal people were dispossessed of their land was through the use of force, and that included violence. But what we also have to... Um, grasp, and as, you, as you've just said, is that there's then a later phase, and as I'm putting it, this is the phase after Aboriginal people start to rec- recover to some degree, where they're devastated again through, um, you know, as you're really putting it, like it's faceless bureaucrats yeah. um, who might think that they have the best interests of Aboriginal people at heart, but because of where they're positioned, in other words, capital cities like Sydney and Melbourne and Adelaide and Perth, are not out there meeting Aboriginal people face-to-face. And in meeting them face-to-face, they're not, they're not seeing the conditions they're in and they're not forced, I guess in an emotional sense, a really important sense, to, to, to grasp what these people are feeling, what are they experiencing? Instead, they are distanced from it, they are detached from it, they're divorced from it. Um, it's uh, a fascinating conversation. It's it's uh, it's a it's a it's a great book. Um, I could obviously speak to you for a lot longer, Bain, because um, <laughs> uh, I have a personal interest in this story. Um, but I've got to go get on to my um, next guest, um, William Cooper. An Aboriginal life story is out now and available in all good bookshops. Actually, um, released today, wasn't it, Bain? It was. It was, Daniel. Yeah. So thanks, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you. I've really, I've really enjoyed it. No sweat whatsoever. Bye-bye. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Um, I'm very glad to welcome back uh, our next guest, uh, Jesse Mosby. He was a Torres Strait Islander man. Um, he and his people are really taking it up to the federal government to make sure that they get some sort of action on climate change. As we know, places like the Torres Strait Islander islands and um, surrounding um, islands in the uh, Asia Pacific are being affected right now by uh, climate change. 
And with the world's leaders, except for the leaders of uh, Russia, India and China, which is very disappointing, all gathering now in Glasgow, it's uh, no better time to make sure that this issue is uh, kept on the agenda. So um, I'm very pleased to um, welcome Niesi back to talk about um, the campaign and how we here in the Triple R listening audience can can be involved in that. Yesi, welcome back to the mission. Yep. Thanks for having me back, yeah. Absolutely, absolute uh, pleasure. Um, tell us about uh, where the campaign is at since we we last spoke. You've you've renewed efforts now to make sure that um, we get try and get some action out of this federal government on climate change. Um, where are we at? Yeah, uh, at the moment, yeah. Now um, we've um, we're waiting for the the reply now from um, Glasgow. Um, so it's a waiting game for us at this moment. Um, Hopefully we hear something good um, comes out comes out of it. Yeah, yeah. You've got a, a website that um, that you've uh, launched where people can actually get involved and um, help uh, with the campaign. The um, the website is ourislandourhome.com.au. Um, have you heard back from um, the government? I mean, did you get a chance to speak to anyone in the federal government before the prime minister headed to Glasgow about this? Um, we, uh, yeah, we, we, we got a, we, we, we got a response from, um, the, the government, um, before this thing in, um, Glasgow now. So, um, what, what the government said that they, um, it's, it's not, it's not only Australia who's, um, um, is contributing to fossil fuels and stuff like that. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's the world to blame and stuff. Um, just not, not only one country. Um, our response was like, but um, be, being Australian citizens and Australia has a duty of care to protect all Australians and um, by reducing the fossil fuel here in Australia would help um, Australians like us um, who are affected by climate change and um, yeah, the high water levels and... Mm. So, so Jesse, tell us now what what's happening um, to to your tra- traditional land. How is climate change impacting on um, on the Torres Strait? Well, it's 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 to be honest, it's re- it's really ridiculous. Um, it's fr- frustrating um, in in the sense of uh, the weather pattern is is not is not the same. People say like it's the plate and stuff like that is moving, but it's more more to that. There's it's it's not not like that. Like you don't get the southeasterly wind blows for nine months. Um, now now living here on, on on a little island, we've been observing Mother Nature all our life and all our historical life, how long we've been here, and um, looking at the weather patterns, especially looking at bird colonies not 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 flocking here um, how they used to be and stuff like that is is a worry. Having our home being washed away a meter in like in three months a meter has been washed away and it, it's been like that it wasn't like that before it's scary um especially when you you see your your loved ones remains being washed away yeah. um, it's not a it's not a thing to like yeah it, it affects you mentally as well yeah, that's um, it's uh, absolutely uh, devastating on, on so many levels, and it's also um, impacting um, uh, salinity, and it's also um, impacting the quality of things like your, your drinking water as well. 
Yes. Yeah. Um, our ancestors, they, fo- they found this island. Um, they lived here. Um, regardless, it's a Coral Cay island, but we're sitting on, on fresh water. Mm. Um, that water used to be drinkable even when I was young. At this moment now, the water is not, not drinkable anymore. It turns all brackish. And due to the government policy, they gave us new houses, um, but they took away all our uh, water tanks. So it just makes life much more harder for us here. Um, high cost of living out here is ridiculous, and buying water on top of other foods and stuff like that just to make hands meet or to, to make life easier to live is, is, is practically not right. Who is the local member, um, Yessi, that um, is responsible for the Torres Strait? Um, I think it's Warren Inch. I, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the, I was just talking to our last guest, uh, Yessi, um, an historian um, from Monash University, and we're talking about how one of the problems in the history of um, advocacy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is having to deal with um, clerks or bureaucrats in faraway places because they don't know the people, they don't have a line of sight to the issues that um, people like um, like yourself um, are, are confronting at the moment. Um, surely um, it would be of use for the responsible minister or someone from the government to actually come out and, and visit and see for themselves what's happening to your home. Exactly. That's um, very true what you're saying. We had nobody come out here. N- nobody comes out here um, to, see, to see the situation and how we live and the struggles we face every day. It's, um, it's not right. Um, we really, yeah, we really, you know, people cannot just like talk on our behalf who didn't, like, who, who's not, didn't even come here to see our struggles to talk on behalf and make decisions for us. Um, it would be best if, if, if they do come here and see the struggle, what we're facing and what, how we live, especially high cost of living. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, nobody wants to pay like, nearly $3 per litre for fuel just wow. to jump in a boat to go and fish and to, to catch food to put on the table. And um, you have to go further now. Like, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. And this, um, people are risking their lives. Uh, workers, because the major industry up here is fish, fishing. So people survive of crayfishing and survive of fish, uh, macro fishings and stuff like that. Now, Having this rough weather, it, it dropped today. Now it's somewhere around 32 knots. Um, it dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it was stronger the other, other week. Um, it's, it's, it's something It's not good, especially when you have a wife and, and a big mob of children waiting for you. It's, it's, a, it's a daring game where people have to risk their life to go in an extra mile to catch food, just to put food on the table. It's ridiculous. We need people out here to see the, our struggle so they could understand what, what, what we are crying for. Well, the, uh, the, the, the Minister for the Environment is uh, Susan Lay, and so I'm encouraging um, anyone who's listening to this uh, program right now, whether you be um, in Melbourne or um, across Australia through the National Indigenous Radio Service, 
or through Koori Radio in um, in Sydney. Um, if you're so inclined, maybe uh, drop a line to to the Honourable Susan Lay MP and um, um, urge her to go and meet with the people of the Torrens Strait to see for herself the conditions that people are um, beginning to suffer there. And, of course, another way you can be, be involved is go to ourislandsourhome.com.au and sign the petition. You can also follow Our Islands Our Home um, Instagram account as well if you want to keep up to date with the, uh, with the campaign. Um, how hopeful are you, Yessi, in terms of getting some action? I mean, you're not asking for much. You're only asking for the government to meet its Paris um, agreements. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. We're not so, asking them to come here and build uh, a giant island connected to us and stuff like that. We're just asking them to meet the mission. Yeah, and it's, it's it's not a lot to ask, and 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 again, yeah. it's so important that um that, that bureaucrats and and politicians actually get out there and 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 meet the people. Um, yes, yeah. this um show will always be open uh, to you and your people if you ever want to continue um using this platform to to cover this issue. Um, we'll sit, wait and see what happens in uh, Glasgow, but um, in in the meantime, uh, yes, you just stay safe and and stay strong, and um, uh, let's stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you once again um, from me and my people here in the Torres Strait. Um, it's, it's a pleasure and it's, it's um, happy again to talk um, on your station. And um, yes, we'll be looking forward to talk on your station again once we hear everything, what's, what's going to happen after. Yeah, let's 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 touch base again and have another yarn about um, what's come out of uh, Glasgow, and um, we'll, we'll try and keep this on the agenda. Yes, it's such an important issue. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>